Welcome to Worldview. From WBEZ, I'm Steve Bynum, in this week for Jerome McDonald. The schools we attend, the taxes we pay, how we vote, the wars we fight, a God in whom we choose to believe or not to believe in. So many essentials in life are dictated to us by borders. With the immigration debate in full swing, many people accuse the other side of believing in open borders. It seems like a a new fad. What do they hope to achieve by calling for the abolition of ICE? Nobody can figure these people out unless you come to the conclusion that the left wing of the Democratic Party, which controls the Democratic Party, believes in open borders. I mean, they believe in open borders. They believe in letting anybody come in who can, who can come in, flood in millions and millions more. Open in borders. Open no, borders. That's a, that's a Koch brothers proposal. The really? idea, Of course. I mean, that's a right-wing proposal which says essentially there is no United States. But it, anybody would, can, it would make a lot me. of global poor richer, wouldn't it? And it would make everybody in America poor. Then you're doing away with with the concept of a nation state. Democrats want open borders, and I'd respect them more if they would just come out and admit it. It's time for final thoughts. You can't attack, demonize, and call to eliminate ICE, but still maintain you care about the safety and security of our nation. You just can't. You just heard U.S. Representative Dana Rohrabacher, Senator Bernie Sanders, and political pundit Tommy Lauren. So despite the accusations, we've assembled a panel of people to to actually do believe in open borders. Brian Kaplan is professor of economics at George Mason University, and he co-authored the forthcoming book, Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. It's a nonfiction graphic novel on the philosophy and social science of immigration. And also with us is Yasmin Nair, an historian and writer. She's editor-at-large of Current Affairs. And joining us shortly will be Zay Garcia Puga. They are a member of the Moratorium to End Deportations campaign, and their latest book is Desirable Undesirables. Welcome, all of you, to Worldview. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Great. I'll grant you this topic is very broad and can easily go off the rails. So today we're going to try to take just a little nibble at one really big question. And that question is, why borders? And we want you to get into the conversation. You in the audience, give us a call at 312-923-9239. Post on Facebook or tweet us at WBEZ Worldview. Okay, Yasmin and Brian, none of, neither of you expected word games and when we asked you to join the show. But we're going to get started with some quick word association. So I want you to give me a one-word answer or a series of one-word answers when I say the word border. Brian? Poverty. Surveillance. That's it? That's how I think of the border, is a, is, is a zone of constant surveillance, demonizing and brutalizing everyone who lives on either side. Mm. Brian, why do you think people feel they need borders? Well, I mean, so... You know, Basically, there's, you know, there's a lot of claims about the bad things that would happen if a lot more people came. And you know, at first glance, I think they make a lot of sense to people. But when you really calm down and crunch the numbers, these claims are just wrong or like really, really the opposite of the truth for the most part. Yes, I mean, your thoughts? Why do you think right. we feel we need borders? Um, you know, <laughs> well, we don't feel we need borders. We've been told we need borders. I'm reminded of the very famous Eddie Izzard 
little riff that he did many years ago on his comedy tour when he mimed a British soldier going, you know, British soldiers going into India and saying, this is our land. And 300 million Indians looked at him and said, looked at them and said, what do you mean this is your land? And they said, well, we just said it was. You can't do that. And the British soldier's response was, do you have a flag? <laughs> and the Indian's response was, no, you gits, we don't. Well, then we own the land because we have a flag and we have some guns behind us, right? So borders in that sense are, you know, we've been schooled, I think, to think of them nowadays as essential demarcations between quote-unquote ways of life, but they have been chiseled into our consciousness because of long histories of colonialism and, uh, uh, you know, basically various kinds of what we would today call state-sponsored terrorism, right? So it's not that we think we need borders and what we try, what, what those of us on the left who are thinking and rethinking and against the idea of borders, what we're really trying to get people to do is to think about the history of the notion of the border itself and what all of that comes with, right? So maybe so I'm ho- really looking forward to today because I hope we can unpack this idea of the border in a historical way. We're going to give it a shot. Brian, uh, you're a libertarian, and um, I watched uh, one of your videos where you discussed the concept. And, and actually, it was very interesting the way you started off because we played a clip of people who accuse others of believing in open borders, but you started off that lecture, and I'm sure many others, by saying what? Uh, probably started off by saying hardly anyone believes in open borders. It's an unfair caricature of most people. But yeah, I actually do think that it's right, the, 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 right, the, uh, the right way to go. And uh, what exactly are open borders in your mind? Yeah, so you know, it's just a system where anyone who wants to live or reside in any country on earth can legally do so. So again, you know, it's different from citizenship for all or anything like that, but you know, it just means that if you want to go and live in the United States or France or Argentina or any other country, uh, you just buy a plane ticket or a boat ticket or a bus ticket and you go there and there's no law saying that you're not allowed to get a job once you arrive. And Brian, we'll get into um, your philosophy as far as migration economics and other issues and what open borders mean to you. But first, uh, Yasmin, if you want to chime in on when you hear the term open borders or what that means to you, is that more of a political statement? Is it more of an economic statement? Is it an existential statement? What What do open borders mean to you? of the position on the left. A lot of people, when they critique the idea of open borders, and I think this very much is reflected in the clips that you played at the very beginning, right? There's a caricature of the left position on open borders, which is the sort of Shazam moment where we just open, literally the open the floodgates and let people in. But strictly speaking, what the uh, open borders is a way for us to start thinking about what constitutes a border and what are all the mechanisms that come along with the border. So to simply, I would push back against the idea of it being a questioner about economic migration or simply about, quote-unquote, freedom, right, the freedom to move about, which, by the way, is a wonderful thing and obviously to be, uh, to be pushed for. But it really is about saying, first of all, what is the border and how the border is, is packed in with 
a set of mechanisms that are about exclusion and about surveillance and about deciding and defining who gets to be a quote-unquote citizen and who gets to be seen as a productive member of society. So the problem with the economic argument for open borders, for instance, is that it simply defines people in terms of, well, hey, you know, we need more, and this, again, I apologize if this seems like another kind of caricature, but it's basically saying we need more people to clean stuff or to make more computers so therefore we must have open borders which leads to prosperity and so on whereas those of us on the left who are talking about open borders are saying borders are are explicitly linked to methods of criminalization so for that for that reason you know the economic open it up to economic migration that argument is based entirely on the idea that we must let in the good migrants right the good productive the word productive comes up quite often whereas we would say, let us argue, let us think about who gets to define what is criminal and good and productive. And you consider, for instance, within, um, you know, within the United States, the drug laws, right, have been rammed up over many, many decades to increase the idea of criminalization. Um, and this is why we're now seeing a sort of a swing back in terms of marijuana, which actually itself is implicated in a larger pharmacy. Mm-hmm. Sort yes. of a pharma mm-hmm. ma- marijuana industry. That's a whole other complicated story. But the point is that we have thinking about borders in terms of opening or closing them allows us. We need what we really need to do is to think about what are the structures mm-hmm. in place that allow people in and out, Great. and what does that then allow us to do in terms of, to put it bluntly, capitalism itself, for instance. Okay, thank. You. So, um, Brian, you are an economist. And mm-hmm. you have a, a number of perspectives on this, and you can certainly incorporate a response to Yasmin in, in your answers. But let's sort of run down sort of the some of the arguments uh, that you give for open borders, especially from an economic perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Uh, so, just to back up, uh, so what Yasmin was talking about is the Shazam view. That basically is my view. I don't want to tie open borders to any kind of philosophy about colonization or anything like that. Think of it as just a very common sense thing of saying that if a person wants to live and work in your country, it's legal for them to do so and leave it at that. Now, you know, exactly you know, what is the case for that? So, you know, I, I would just, you know, begin by saying that philosophically, you know, it, it seems like it's the kind of thing you would have to justify to say that a person isn't able to live and work where they want. So I'm not saying that's impossible, but I would say there's just a general presumption in favor of people being able to live and work where they want. Mm-hmm. And then well, that's where I would bring the economics in and saying, well, what are the arguments against allowing that? So, you know, I think probably the most popular one is the one that you had Bernie Sanders talking about saying that it's going to cause horrible poverty in the receiving country. And again, here, you know, there's been just a lot of work on what the actual effects are. And the, the main thing to understand about immigration is that it's a way of moving labor from countries where it is less productive to countries where it's more productive. And, you know, you know so, like, you know, take like a Haitian who moves to Miami. The day he shows up before he has learned a word of English or anything else, his, uh, his earnings skyrocket, maybe going from a dollar or two a day to going to $50 a day or $100 a day. And the reason is because the Haitians labor just a lot more productive in the United States than it is back home in Haiti, which, you know, Jen doesn't have that much to do with him. How productive would you be if you were stuck in Haiti? 
right? So, you know, the real economic case, you know, and uh, in the case in the case saying that rather than causing poverty, open borders would cause an enormous amount of you know, of, uh, of actual wealth creation. To saying, look, you know, open borders is a way where people are allowed to move their labor from places where it is less productive to places where it's more productive. And again, this doesn't just benefit the migrant; also benefits everyone who consumes all those products. Uh, so, I have a th- this thought experiment I like. So, you know, imagine you've got a million farmers stuck in Antarctica. They're just farming the snow, eking out a bare, meager existence. What happens if you allow those Antarcticans to move to a more hospitable country? And you know, obviously, the Antarcticans are going to be better off. But in the in, in the more hospitable country, the more favorable of you know farming conditions, mm-hmm. they grow a lot more food. And what do they do with that food? They sell it. So it winds up benefiting everybody who eats. Now, when economists go and try to measure how much would the production of mankind go up if you were to go and let anyone live anywhere they want, usual number is something like a doubling of the production of the world. So I see, you know, like this is not trickle-down economics. This is Niagara Falls economics, just an explosion of wealth that you can get from untrapping labor from unproductive places in the world and allowing it to move to places where it can really fulfill its potential. Sure. So... And later in the show, we're going to get to what are some of the solutions or how to make that happen. But obviously, um, there is a vested interest in exploiting cheap labor or using borders as a way to exploit cheap labor. And so, Yasmin, if you want to respond to that, you don't have to respond to my comment. But what are your thoughts on that? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll respond to that briefly by saying that all that does, this business of allowing Haitians, for instance, or Filipinos, for instance, uh, to come into this country, for instance, and send money back to their home countries, all that's doing really is supporting a remittance economy. Right? It's allowing people to simply support the people they left behind at home, their families and so on. And, to, and those economies are not necessarily improving, neither are conditions for people um, in places like Haiti or the Philippines. Those economies are not being boosted. In fact, as we know, uh, major corporations, American corporations, are able to use all kinds of loopholes to use places like Haiti as manufacturing places, right? So, which is why you get um, your underwear so ridiculously cheap and so on. We all know this. I mean, so that, that isn't shifting in any way. So I'm not sure what we mean by, you know, productivity and so on, all of that increasing. But I wanted to sort of shift this, all of this, from simply talking about people being able to buy more things, <laughs> which is a very, you know, it, 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 it's, it, which, which restricts the idea of, dare we say, human potential to having more things. I want to shift that to thinking about the sheer brutality of a world today, you know, you have, that is entirely defined increasingly for masses amount of people by the conditions of forced migration, if we want to call it migration, right, of forced removal, forced, enforced kind of um, uh, dis- a desperate move to escape. We might even call it moves mm. of escape, right? Sure. That's yeah. what's happening. And if you think about Syria, which only a very short time ago in, the, in terms of the blip of human history was, an, an, you know, was, a, was a strong economy, uh, which is now in complete devastation. If you think about all of that, those are the conditions that we have to think about. And the way to think about those issues, you know, the ways to think about them are not through things like, uh, 
open borders in terms of, say, butterflies moving across borders, and I'm, I'm not at all caricaturing uh, Mr. Kaplan's views here, I just want to be clear, I'm talking more actually about the way even some people on the left imagine, right, this idea of open borders. That's not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is colonialism is an integral part of the world as it is constructed. Today. Sure. Sure, great. Are we not on right now? I hear music. No, 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 you're on. We're, we're about to take okay. a break. So, Yasmin, thank you very much. And we're going to give uh, Brian an opportunity to define specifically what he means by production. But I also want to give the audience an opportunity to jump in on this conversation to ask the question, do we need borders? What would a world look like if it had open borders? So to get into this conversation, give us a call at 312-923-9239. Post this on Facebook with your question or comment, or you can tweet us at WBEZ Worldview. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And we're talking about borders. Why do we have them? Do we need them? How do you feel about a world or a society with no borders? Give us a call at 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-9239. You can post us on Facebook. And you can uh, post us at Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. And to help us tackle this ominous question. We have with us Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason. Mason, his forthcoming book, co-authored book is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration. And Yasmin Nair is a freelance writer, historian, and editor-at-large of Current Affairs. And also joining us soon will be Zay Garcia-Puga. They are a member of the Moratorium to End Deportations campaign, and they authored the book Desirable undesirables. So before the break, Brian, uh, Yasmin was talking about the need to pivot from a strictly economics sort of perspective and talk about um, other factors when thinking about borders. And before you answer that, I, I did want to link to uh, back to your video, because one of the things that I noticed about the way you gave the answers is that you had a very sort of um, for lack of a better word, um, at not a tone, sort of like, I know what you're going to say, I know what your answers are, I know what you're going to attack me with, but here are the facts, whether you like it or not, and I'm just going to present it and do with it what you will. So um, first, let's sort of respond to uh, pivoting from necessarily a pure economics perspective about talk about borders and labor, then then also talk about some of the types of people and questions you get bombarded with when you talk about having open borders. Yeah, so I think it's kind of odd to say that I'm only looking at this from an economic point of view. You know, what I say, like open borders just means that anyone on earth can live and reside, you know, can reside and work in any country where they want. Of course, one of the main things people are going to do is try to get, try to move to get a better job. There's a lot of other motivations that people have for moving. Although it's true when you see people moving in very large numbers, the most common reason is people are moving to go and get a better job. And what I say about that is that's great because they are enriching themselves while enriching the world. It's not the kind of thing that you should be afraid of, but rather it's the kind of thing that you know is uh, should you know should be welcome not just for the migrant but for 
the uh, you know, but but for you know for the rest of the world to see that labor is not going to waste and people can actually make good use of their skills. I mean, of course, you know, you know, some you know, there's other things people want to do. So, like one of them is they want to escape uh, war zones. Right. Uh, that's you know, one important thing that you might want to do. Another thing is just to bring your family together. Again, when people talk about remittances, of course, a big part of the reason why remittances are so important, you know, sending money, you know, going to work in a country and sending money home is because it's really hard to get the rest of your family to move with you. So, you know, like, you know, a lot a lot of what would happen under really open borders is that it wouldn't just be workers that would move. They would move with their whole family. And again, if you're wondering, like, so what's going to happen to the sending country? Uh, you know, like, you know, probably our best experiment we have here is Puerto Rico. So since 1902, the U.S. has had open borders with Puerto Rico. And the result is, first of all, over half of all Puerto Ricans have left. It took a long time, but over the course of decades, over uh, most Puerto Ricans now live inside of the, uh, you know, the 50 U.S. states. But at the same time, Puerto Rico is actually, you know, despite the despite the horrible hurricane, is basically the richest island in the entire Caribbean. So, like a big, like so, it's not that the people who remain behind are doing worse. And again, those remittances, of course, part of it. But also, when people move from Puerto Rico and come to the U.S., they get business connections, they get skills, and you know, they may want to go home and retire in Puerto Rico. So, all of these things mean that you get development in the sending country as well as the receiving country. Which again doesn't mean that's the only important thing, but it's it is one. One important thing, and I will say that you know, like for you know for the vast majority of people, like the chance to go and move and get a better job is way more important to them than some philosophy about colonization or something like that. I mean, which again is I think something that you know like you probably need a PhD even to understand. I need to butt in here and say that this is not a philosophy of uh, colonization. Colonization is not something that's difficult to understand, especially if you live in a place like Puerto Rico, and especially if you live in places like the Philippines or India. I think it might be extraordinarily difficult to understand, perhaps, if you are a certain kind of American citizen, but colonization is a brutal reality. It's a never-ending reality for many people across the world, even today. So that is not, I mean, I think that's a terribly, dare I say, American centric view of how colonization works out. And the point about colonization is that it has technically not ended, right? The effects of it are still reverberating across across the planet. Now, when it comes to the question of migration, people are not migration, migrating for economic reasons, first of all. They're not? No, there's no such thing. That's crazy. How can you say they're not migrating for economic reasons? Will you let me finish and not be such a man? Thank you so much. So, Economics is intrinsically bound up with the political, right? We are talking about a globe that is in in many ways, a global economy that is in many ways sustained by an interpenetration between the, the, the violence of war and the violence of capitalism. In other words, what is driving many economic policies today is the impulse also to carry on certain kinds of forms of domination. That, if you, you cannot separate that, Stuff, which is why, to give, you, to give your audience a very basic example, right? In recent years, over the last decade or so, we have seen a lot of outcry about blood diamonds. Now, I happen to love diamonds, so let's not go there. But the, the idea about blood diamonds, right, the idea about critiquing and being considerate about where you get your diamond engagement ring from, right, is very much a part of a conversation that has been going on for many years about asking people to think about how this extraordinarily beautiful object is, in fact, constructed as such and also dependent upon the sort of brutalized labor of millions of people we don't see. So in that sense, and I'm not done here. In that sense, um, <laughs> okay. this idea of you know the 
separating the economic, right? So, so sort of in such a banal fashion as to make it seem like nothing at all is it completely occludes the reality of what's going on in migration. Oh, okay, okay, yes, and we're going to. In terms we're, of migration, what I also want to say here is quickly me, because I really don't want to get. I, I I don't think it's really worthwhile for this to become simply an argument or a debate between two people. I do want to point to the audience in particular to I think an analogy about a situation that many people, even in America, are more cognizant of, which is the, pr- the prison system, what those of many of us refer to as the prison industrial okay. complex, a phrase that was not in vogue even five years ago. Okay, so Yasmin, 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 I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry to jump in, but um, I'm going to have to uh, allow a guest who just, Zay just walked in the door, and actually this is what he wants to discuss. Uh, Zay Garcia Puglia is a member of Moratorium to End Deportations Campaign. He's the, they are the author of the book Desirable Undesirables, and this is specifically his expertise. And so, Zay, I know you're having some issues getting here, but welcome to Worldview. Thank you so much for and having so, me. And so do you want to chime in on this? Absolutely. Where I just, um, you know, your guest said is talking about colonialization like it's some like mythical thing that happened a long time ago that requires a PhD to understand is just ridiculous. Um, we have made several lifelong friendships with the Tohono O'odham Nation. Uh, the Tohono O'odham Nation uh, uh, exists just south of what is now uh, Arizona and Flagstaff. And the Tohono O'odham Nation have existed on both sides of what is now the U.S. and Mexico for thousands and thousands of years and those people are still here they are some of our very best friends people like the um like the attorney nelly joe david who specializes in uh indigenous sovereignty law uh people like shining soul people like um uh like, like nelly joe david who we've been working with um extensively to come you gotta turn your phone off I'm so sorry to combat these, <laughs> this uh, this thing called comprehensive immigration reform. And what I really want to tell my communities, uh, I myself exist uh, within the deportation continuum because I am a criminal. Um, I have been illegalized uh, by the state, uh, the very state that has sought the destruction of people like the Tohono O'odham Nation. Um, and right now they are battling uh, what is now understood as comprehensive immigration reform. And what I really want your listeners and my community to understand is that comprehensive immigration reform at its crux is about geopolitics. It is about militarization. It is about billions upon billions of dollars for Israeli apartheid companies like Elbit Systems, like G4S, like Microsoft. We have to fundamentally understand that these are indigenous lands. Mexico is a colony in as much as the United States is a colony. These colonial systems have insidious ways of destroying us to this day. And like I said, I really fundamentally want our communities to understand that there are a lot of powerful, nonprofit immigrant rights lobbies that work in conjunction with the Democratic Party so, so long as they respect the Republican and the Democratic consensus to militarize the southern border because, I mean, and that's, that's a whole topic in and of its own. I sure. mean, how is comprehensive immigration okay. reform actually um, just uh, a way for the American empire to establish its domain, its sovereignty at a time when global regimes are fraying? And we're going to bring that back into our larger discussion of borders. And give us a call at 312-923-9239, 312-923-9239. We're going to give Brian an opportunity to respond to all of this. But first, we're going to talk to Russ. Russ, you're on Worldview. Hi. Um, open borders implies a fluidity of 
people moving when they want, where they want, in any number they want. But eventually, when people go to where they want to go, they establish themselves, they form communities, they pay taxes, they get services, they get comfortable, they have children, they build schools, et cetera, et cetera. And the fluidity at some point stops. And they say, okay, I like it here. This is good. Now I want to defend it. So my question is, how do you take care of that healthy tension between people who want to move somewhere and those who did move here however many years ago and now have established themselves and said, I went through this, I want this, this is mine. How do you work through that? Okay, so um, we're going to give Brian an opportunity to um, answer that question first and if he wants to have a response to the last few minutes. Yeah, so I mean, this is the kind of problem that really solves itself. Um, you know, you know, primarily by when you have your kids, they go and grow up in their new country and they acculturate to the new country. Of course, you know, parents do that to some extent. But again, you know, this is the kind of thing that happened for the entire largely open borders period of U.S. history. It still happens today. If you want to get an idea about how much assimilation is going on, I always ask people to just ask an immigrant parent. And they'll tell you, yeah, I can't believe how much my kid isn't been Americanized by being here. So, you know, I don't think that's really too much of a concern uh, in terms of you know, responses. So, you know, like, I really appreciate the work of anyone who is working against deportations. And, you know, like, I just, I, the, you know, it's terrible that a person who's, uh, who's uh, like, is, you know, would actually be illegal just for going and living their lives. Yes, so, but you know, you've got, I just want to make, make it secret. clear that yes. we work against yes. all deportations, yes. regardless of yeah. whether someone has been deemed worthy or not yeah. worthy. Yeah, of, of course. Of course. Well, again, that's, uh, you know, that is the open borders idea is anyone is free to live and work where they want. Uh, I mean, I would say I just think that it's a big mistake to go and try to tie a common sense idea like letting people live and work where they want to any larger philosophy of history, to any big theory about how the world works. Uh, you, know, you know, so I think it's, you know, it's a common sense idea. And I think it's best just to go and tell people the idea instead of telling them to accept a general view. Of I the think world. it's best that you stop being condescending towards indigenous mm-hmm. people and allow them mm-hmm. the opportunity to mm-hmm. articulate their resilience mm-hmm. that's ongoing. I mean, it's centuries long. These people have not disappeared. Uh, right now, I am at NPR Studios mm-hmm. along the lakefront. Mm-hmm. This is still Potawatomi land. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, again, again I don't see what this really no, has no, to no, do no, with no, the No, 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 no. I'm telling you that those treaties yeah. still yeah. exist. Those treaties mm-hmm. still exist. The burgeoning American mm-hmm. colony and, you know, the burgeoning elites of the Potawatomi people here in Chicago promised the Potawatomi the land that these studios are on. That is not mm-hmm. in the past. That is mm-hmm. ongoing. And we can take up that claim. Right. But again, I don't see this as much to do with open borders, which is the topic here. Well, the, again, it has everything yes, to do with yes. the fact that your borders are abstract fictions that are actually just enforced through terror. So when you want to mm. talk about mm. uh, Midwestern American values, what do you mean? This like concentration mm. camp logic that we're undergoing? Yeah. I mean, again, so you did miss the first part of the show, but like I'm completely undecided on this matter. Like I like I agree that these the, the borders are, enfor- are enforced through violence and that they're wrong. Uh, but again, I'm just saying that I think you should, you know, it's better to just focus on that and talk about what are the likely effects if borders are relaxed or opened rather than tell people your general philosophy. I have to say, this is such a fantasy land that I'm looking at here. You know, this wonderful fairy tale about how people just move across borders and establish families. And there's absolutely no trauma anywhere. There's nothing. People just move across borders, set up homes and bodegas and shops and so on, and live happily ever after. But, you know, it, this is... Well, well, there's plenty of trauma. I never, never suggest they didn't, you know, so... 
There's yeah, a history me. of colonization. I live on the south side. There's a history of colonization on the south side. And it's not just, it's not only Native American, colon, the colonization of Native American people, but it is about the enforced sort of busing, the enforced redistribution of bodies in Chicago, which is itself a form of colonization. Anyone who lives on the south side has a fundamental understanding of that. Now, they may not discuss it in the terms that you think are perhaps more applicable. I don't know. But everybody understands the brutality of history history of historical relationships uh, in Chicago alone, just living in the city, we understand it. So to kind of, you know, uh, diffuse all of this into a kind of fantasy about people just move because they want a better life, well, first of all, that completely ignores what is happening in the places that they leave behind. And is that simply simply something that they just leave behind and completely forget? So, Yasmin, um, let, let me jump in and... and uh, is what I will end with. So let me jump in and ask the question and just plain sure. devil's advocate. Uh, so you have a situation where in pragmatic terms, uh, people aren't going to. I, re- I remember a long time ago, I was having a discussion with Jerome, actually, McDonald, who's on vacation. And, and we were having a similar discussion. And I said, well, if a Potawatomi showed up at your house, would you and claim your and claim the land underneath your home? Would you leave your home? And he kind of he didn't answer, but you know it gave us both something to think about. And so, speaking in pragmatic terms, if Brian trying to come from uh, what what he might view, what others might view as a realist perspective about what are the solutions, and he's coming with an economic model, what would Yasmin? What would you view as sort of a a realist solution uh, in dealing with creating? you know, equality or uh, some kind of regime of reparations and such. So the first thing I would say to you is that the fact that we live in a time where economics is considered realistic, but history is not, right, but mm-hmm. in terms of perspective, I'm dumbfounded by that. And especially dumbfounded because, as all of us know, and I think as Brian understands, economics is actually a pretty relatively new discipline. And until fairly recently, in my father's lifetime, for instance, was actually humanities degree, which has now become a quote-unquote science. So let us not talk about economics as in any way infused with reality. That's one. The second thing is that we think about the prison industrial complex. This is why I keep coming back to the prison industrial complex as an analogy for this, that is useful for this discussion in open borders. When we start to talk about prisons, as many people, Angela Davis, Mariam Kaba, you know, many, many, most of them black women, I might add, have been talking about prison industrial complex for a very long time. The discussion is now finally coming down to, yes, we wanted to think about reform, but maybe we should really thinking about abolition. And until even three years ago, people were saying that abolition was pie in the sky. What are you, crazy? What are you talking about abolition for? But abolition has now become a way to think about why do we have prisons, which is to say, how do prisons operate to keep fundamental economic, yes, and historical inequalities in place, right? C- certainly, but, but, but... So we don't, I would, oh, I am actually not in fa- I do not want to start discussing about, you know, what would happen if, an, you know, if a Native American showed up at the door. That is not... That, that is not the issue here. The issue here is 
how are we to grapple with this enormously complex set of systems that are in place? One way to grapple with them is to say, let's use this moment to simply talk about economic migration as if it's this very simple thing and just, again, you know, Brian says something about, well, of course, everyone should be allowed to enter. Well, I think Brian knows perfectly well that that is never the case right now, right? No one is saying everyone should be allowed to enter. Everyone is saying, how do we filter? How do that, we that actually, that is what I'm saying. Okay, well, we'll, we'll give Brian a, a chance to answer for himself. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess I'm just disappointed that we barely talked about open borders in, in, in this radio interview. Again, as I said, the open borders is the idea that everyone should be free to live and work in any country on earth. Uh, of course, there are many arguments against it. And in my work, I try to go over those arguments very patiently just to convince people that if, you know, like, I, I totally understand why you're worried about the consequences, but the consequences actually on balance are a big improvement for the world, not, uh, not something that's going to ruin your life. Okay, and we're going to take a call from Dan. Dan, you're on Worldview. Uh, hi. Um, so it seems like there's there's a lot of like argument and conflict here, but really everyone agrees on on, on the issue, which is open borders. And I think um, I'm sorry, I forget his name, but the, the man talking about um, the economics is Brian. Uh, in terms of Brian, yes, in terms yes. of go ahead, Dan. Yes. Yeah. In terms of convincing people, uh, you know, that open borders are a good thing. You know, you can talk about. The, the colonialization aspects and all these things, and, and on an intellectual, academic, moral level, you know, those are good to know and good to learn about and good to understand and appreciate. But when it comes to convincing people here now today, you know, that open borders are a good thing. The economic argument is what resonates. It's what you know people vote not on like you know historical colonial grounds, academic grounds. They vote on what's going to affect them and their families here now today, which is why I think you know the economic reasons. Uh, for you know, and, and benefits of open borders are, are such a powerful um, aspect of this whole discussion. Okay, Zay wants to jump in on this one. Yeah, I mean, let's just um, let's not forget that indigenous people like the Zapatistas, indigenous people like the Tohono Nation, indigenous people uh, like the Diné Nation already have their own networks um, of commerce, their own networks that do not rely or try not to rely on capitalism in any way, uh, networks of exchange and love and caring for each other that are rooted in the land. So this question about whether a Potawatomi comes over or not, I mean, it's just um, that's already looking at the land uh, as an object. Um, and I think that we need to rearticulate uh, our position as being one with the land. And truly, the land is for those of us that cultivate the land. Okay, we're going to take our final break, and then we're going to spend the last few minutes actually being more direct about open borders. I sort of hinted with Zay that we're going to square, we're going to actually land a plane on this one. So please call us, join in, and we're going to have an, a conversation about open borders. Call us at 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-9239. I'm Steve Bynum. You're listening to World View. This is WBEZ.
1245. You're listening to a lively discussion about open borders on Worldview on WBEZ Chicago, and it continues in just a moment. WBEZ is supported by Aurora University, offering online programs in business, computer science, and more. Information available at online.aurora.edu. By Goodman Theater, presenting Support Group for Men, a comedy about a group of middle-aged pals confronting a changing world. The Chicago Tribune says it's laugh-out-loud funny, now playing through July 29th, goodmantheater.org. Worldview on WBEZ is supported by India House, bringing Indian culture to Chicago through authentic northern Indian cuisine. Multi-course lunch, buffet, and dinner served seven days a week. India House located in Chicago and Hoffman Estates. More at indiahouse.com. It's 1246 in 14 minutes right after Worldview at 1 o'clock. It's hour one of Here and Now. I'm Jeremy Hobson. Imagine you could speak Korean and Mandarin. And French. And that's just the beginning. As our series on language continues, we'll hear from polyglots. That's next time on Here and Now. Listen in for Here and Now. Two hours between 1 and 3 o'clock. Here on WBEZ. We have a nice day, sunny with a high near 85 today. Also, we're going to have a nice clear night tonight with a low around 65. That's pretty much the pattern through Thursday. Sunny and 81 now at 1247. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in for Jerome McDonald. And we're having a very hot discussion about the topic of borders. And we're speaking with Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, Yasmin Nair, who is a historian and a writer for Current Affairs, and Zay, who is a member of the moratorium to end deportations campaign. And I want to get to a very pointed and direct question. Zay, I'm going to start with you. So if we have open borders, what does that look like? Well, fundamentally, it looks like a world without prisons. It looks like a world without borders. It looks like a world without the military. It looks um, something like the world that indigenous people inhabited before colonization. And I think we fundamentally have to understand that borders and prisons emerge out of colonization uh, and the social death of black people. And I think that America as a house has been stacked um, as a place of deep despair, uh, of deep trauma. And I think that an open border society um, is something that we all aspire to. And I'm not sure what it's going to look like. Uh, I'm not. So beyond a mind exercise, right. what does it look like? Well, I think it looks uh, very much like what the Tohono O'odham Nation is, is and has been doing, which is just defying uh, the National Guard. Um, the National Guard... Um, has been expanding right now. The National Guard is trying to, uh, uh, you know, do the search at the southern border. Elbit Systems is trying to put in its towers uh, to be able to track migrants and other undesirable groups. Um, you know, we have drones coming to the border, like like Ann Coulter has suggested. Um, and, you know, it, it tr- I think it looks like what the Tohono O'odham Nation is doing in order to defy uh, the incursion on their lands, um, and it's something that they've been doing for centuries since, uh, you know, uh, these colonies emerged. And uh, for them, you know, their ancestral practices where they go worship, where they pray, where they eat, where they go visit their, their family, their kin, you know, it's, it's, it's on both sides. So they, they're very fluid. And it wasn't until 1994 
that their that their border was initially militarized. And it's just so interesting that um, we're talking about economic development and what that looks like in open borders. Um, it's so interesting that when the border was initially initially closed in that way, milita- milita- militaristically speaking, was 1994, which was the year that NAFTA was passed. And you know, since then, the Tohono O'odham Nation has done their best to defy this imaginary but very brutal border mm-hmm. in order to be able to perform ceremony, in order to be able to uh, just you know enact their world vision and their their, their life ways uh, before colonization. Okay, so obviously militarism is a big part of how you define borders and what it means to you. And so um, we're going to get to Brian and get his view on this. But first, I want to go to Ashley. Ashley, you're on Worldview. Hi. Hi. So I had a comment, um, like a comparison of, you know, people are so afraid of what would happen with open borders and the consequences. But, you know, the EU, more or less, the European Union countries have open borders within each other, allowing people to pass without visas, well, the, people to work in other countries. And now you have Brexit as a result, right? Yeah, but, you know, I think that was more of the populist, uh, like a reaction mm. to the populist being upset, I, you know, is a whiplash. Mm. You had people the next day, you know, citizens of Britain Googling, what is Brexit? You know, I think it was just a, a hot-headed reaction, and I think they're truly actually kind of regretting it. But then you have, even just within the United States, like, yes, we're one country, but we have 50 states. And how it's set up, you know, I can freely go from here in Chicago to Indiana. I could work there and live here, and it's not an issue. And that's just been extrapolating that to other countries. Mm. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Really appreciate your call. So, Brian, uh, let's tie that tie that in. I mentioned Brexit and um, the backlash to um, the open border system of the European Union. Can you describe first of all when you when you think about open borders? What does that mean? All right. So again, like I said, so open borders to me, it just means that people are free to reside and work in any country that they want to on Earth. It's got nothing to do with the military or prisons other than, of course, not putting people in prison for crossing borders, which is uh, the, the, the whole heart of the idea. I mean, in terms of, you know, like, you know, to what extent immigration caused Brexit, you know, so, like, you, know, you know, the main result here is that the places with the highest foreign born share in Britain are the ones that are most likely to vote against. So, you know, you know, you know, the main argument to the other side is that places that had a rising amount were more likely to vote for. You know, to me, it just looks like this is just a transition problem where people have trouble uh, dealing with immigrants at first. But once they're around, they look, they see, well, actually, things are pretty much fine. And so, you know, like, you know, there's there's you, know, you think, think of it as, you know, growing pains. But, you know, I don't see this as any big argument against open borders. Yasmin? Yes, I think, you know, to answer that question, what do what does uh, open borders look like? Um, what open borders, the concept in real life would look like is that people are, yes, able to migrate across borders, but not without all of us fundamentally, globally ensuring that the economy that they move from are also healthy, that the places that they live in, that the families that they leave behind or take with them are also fundamentally healthy. And, not just, and, and that is not just a place where elites move across borders, but where everybody is able to move across borders regardless. I would also argue that it's actually not easy for people to migrate across borders in the United States. And I, I agree in many other ways with the caller who called in, but it's actually not easy for people in Chicago, for instance, to just move across 
across the border to Illinois just to set up. It all depends on racial, gender, economic factors. So I think we really have to think about what migration means and how migration is tied to our statuses as individual human beings and our histories as human beings. That's all I have to say. Aaron in McHenry County, you're on Worldview. Hi. Hi. How you guys doing? What's your question or comment, Aaron? Sure. I was listening to you guys talk about the open borders, and mm-hmm. I was wondering whether or not uh, U.S. policy of open borders would have an effect on illegal trafficking, um, whether it be drug trafficking or human trafficking, whatever it might be. Uh, we'll let Brian answer it, and Zay will jump in. Brian? Yeah, so for human trafficking, it would almost get rid of it because one of the main reasons that trafficking exists is because people are trying to Ill- illegally cross the border. So if they could just do it with a bus ticket, they're not going to go and put themselves at risk with doing it illegally. In, term, you know, in term, terms of drugs, um, so, you know, you know so I, I guess, you know, the, you know, the main thing to say about that is, is like when trade is easier, then it's easier to trade legal and illegal things. So probably be a bit more. But again, I don't see that as a huge deal. But uh, again, then we'd have to have a separate discussion of drug policy to really go into it. So, Brian, you, you've referenced um, what uh, the solutions could be, but it's the getting there, that the mm-hmm. missing link for me. And so obviously you have to deal with policy and you have to deal with people mm-hmm. who are trying to get elected to office. You're dealing with political people. You're dealing, there are all sorts of levels to this um, beyond just simple economics letting, yes, let more people work. But then what are some of the political changes? What are some of the societal changes that have to happen in order to get to where you want to get? So I think I want to respond to that. And I think that, you know, it's a really tough question to answer. But I think, like, it's going to be bloody. Having open borders is going to be a very bloody process because the state is always trying to reify itself. And it is always trying to reinvent the subjectivity of the slave. So it is always redesigning its prisons, its borders, its, uh, its jobs. You know, it's like if we want to talk about human trafficking, let's talk about capitalism. Let's talk about the state. Let's talk about how our children are literally being filtered to detention centers that are now just Walmarts. Um, let's talk about how the Department of Homeland Security operates ICE also operates Customs of Border Patrol, how commodities at a Walmart are now the same thing as children from indigenous migrant communities. Um, Let's talk about how, you know, getting to this open border thing is going to be very, very bloody. And I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of legislation going around. You know, I don't think the Bernie Sanders of the world are going to do it. I don't think Elizabeth Warren is going to do it. Um, I think it's going to take uh, indigenous and anarchist praxis the way that it's always been done from the Cuban Revolution to the Haitian Revolution to what's happening in places like Ferguson. It's going to be a synthesis between black and brown people and anarchists that are going to fundamentally destroy the social fabric of America. So before I quickly let Brian answer that question, I would say to you, Zay, then isn't one of the lessons or what would be said, one of the lessons of the past election uh, process in 2016 is that when people don't participate, when they don't vote, when they're not involved in the political process, then they lose their power, their ability. Absolutely. For I, I, just, I just think that that is just such a dead and tired argument. I'm just so tired. So of how else do you do it I, if well, not through the well, political I mean, I, I can show you, and I've been doing it for about 10 years. You know, today I woke up in a squat in Chicago's West Side. So we take foreclosed homes and we give them to the community. We mm-hmm. give them through legal help and through legal means and channels. We mm-hmm. give uh, homes to the community. Why? Because those homes are not the banks. They are not America's. Those homes are the people that live there. Right? So... 
you know, for, for, for us, this, like, this question of how we're going to do it, I mean, we've been doing it for 10 years, and it takes having community discussions. You know, today uh, in Little Village, we're going to be hosting a discussion on hashtag keep families together. Is it a solution or is it a crisis? You know, are these uh, organizations like ICER, like OCAD, like the dreamer narratives that we're being, you know, fed through the mainstream media, are these the narratives, are these the values of our people or are these values of separation that pit deserving communities against non-deserving communities? And I would invite everyone to come to the Little Village Public Library today, starting at 5.30 until 7.30. Me and the rest of the moratorium on deportations campaign will be hosting a community town hall on the issue of the NGO industrial complex, border militarization, and yeah, this issue of open borders. Okay, thank you, Zay and Brian. Do you want, do you have uh, 15 to 20 seconds to wrap? Yeah, I, open borders has nothing to do with violence. I don't know. This, this stuff about things are going to get bloody is completely crazy. I want nothing whatsoever to do with that. You know, like uh, Open borders is just about letting people reside and work anywhere they want and doesn't require and should not involve anything involving violence of the kind. Uh, yes, mean? Good God. I think immigration and open borders, it's not a science experiment. You cannot do all of this under closed conditions, the kind that are being discussed by some people. I think we have to understand that actually this idea of history and histories that people are still living is not foreign to most of us who actually have to live them. Those who are privileged enough to forget it are privileged enough to do so. But immigration, open borders, those things are not science experiments. We have to be prepared for a lot of messiness in the years forward. Yasmin Nair, Zay, David Kaplan, thank you all for this discussion. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll be back with a Romanian senator who's going to talk about how populism is sweeping his country and what they're doing about it. I'm Steve Bynum. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.